Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life, the Battle to Be Trauma Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Fee, and I'm really excited to come to you this this day, this week, because this is our one-year anniversary from our 501c3 nonprofit. So we are currently recording our last four episodes of our very first season our very first year. And in this year of being in existence, we have published original PTSD research. We have created a modular program, a system that can be incorporated into organizations that are looking to protect the mental health of their employees. We have people in positions in, um, search and rescue in the fire department and in the police department, all representing our program. We have helped 67 families through our ferryman mission program, where we take one-of-a-kind flax to families of our fallen heroes. Most of those are suicides to hold space and to have a real human connection with families that are feeling Uh, closed off or left out of the life that they have given so much for. And we have, just this month, we have assisted 14 one-on-one individuals through their post-traumatic occupational traumatic stress journey, um, saving marriages, stopping suicides, and getting people back onto the road of recovery and self-empowerment. And all of this, we couldn't have done without your support, uh, both through watching our podcast, sharing our posts, and being involved in our program and our sponsors and the donations that you guys make to our programs. We are 100% funded by our communities. We do not get any federal funding as of yet. It usually takes two to three years of existing to be able to access those kind of grants and those kind of services. So you guys have shown us in this, just in our very first year, how much faith you have in us, how important this project is. And we are super, super proud to represent Um, our communities in leading the charge against occupational traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress in our in our communities. So today I want to bring you an amazing guest who has an extraordinary background not just in law enforcement but in emergency medicine as well. So please welcome David Barres. Hi how are you? I am wonderful. It's so great to have you here today. These are really important conversations to have, and and I love, I love bringing real people, who have really diverse stories, uh, to show people that post traumatic stress and the experiences of first responders, there's no cookie cutter way that this presents. It's not predictable. It's not everybody goes into a box. It's it's very unique to each of us and. And we need to be able to recognize first responders as human beings and individuals, first and foremost. So let's begin by talking about your childhood a little bit. Who was little David and and what did you have visions for your future and for yourself? 
Uh, great question. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for having me here today. And it's kind of exciting to be part of your anniversary episodes. I think that's really special. You guys are doing such amazing work uh, with your organization. And uh, one of the things that I have actually is my tagline for my email is earn your badge every day. And uh, you guys are certainly doing that. So thank you for, for everything that you guys do. Thank you. Uh, so who is little David? Uh, little David had a, I don't know, I think a normal childhood, but, um, you know, normal is obviously in the, the eyes of the beholder. Uh, my parents were divorced by the time I was 13. My dad had been cheating on my mom most of my youth. Um, he was there in a absent kind of way for us when I was a kid. Um, I also had some physical health issues uh, growing up starting from, you know, the first week of life, uh, my grandmother had found me in my crib dead um, and uh, had revived me at a week old. So that was the beginning of my health issues. Um, and I ended up with, you know, all kinds of uh, sinus infections, colds. I just was a sick kid all the time. So I had a lot of exposure to uh, medical staff. I was, you know, in and out of the hospital a lot. And um, and by the time I was seven, I had my tonsils and adenoids removed, uh, which then kind of solved a lot of those childhood medical issues. But the reason I bring that up is because I wanted to be a doctor because of it. Um, I had no understanding of really what law enforcement was. You know, my dad was a reservist in the military when I was a kid. Um, so I had some kind of that like uniformed exposure, uh, but I didn't really know what he, I still don't know what he ever did. Uh, in the military, he, um, uh, he, just his presence coming and going uh, in a uniform every, you know, once a month on the weekends or, you know, two weeks a year, uh, kind of gave me that exposure to, wow, that's kind of cool. Uh, and it was something that I knew I eventually wanted to do something that was identifiable. Um, and, you know, as a kid, I thought it was medicine because that was the exposure I had. Uh, but as I got older and I realized that, uh, the family stress that we were going through, um, you know, to my parents' relationship and then their divorce, there was police involvement in that um, as an early teen. And uh, I recognized the work that those guys did coming in, fixing our problems-ish. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's cooler than medicine. You're actually having an immediate effect on people day to day. And it, it kind of started sparking something in me. And then by the time I was 14, um, I kind of combined the two and I became a volunteer EMT. And uh, it was cool to have the lights and sirens. It was cool to have the uniform, but it was also cool to help people when they needed it the most. Uh, and so I volunteered at the starting at the age of 14, became an EMT by 16. Uh, I was involved in all the, the rescue side as well. Uh, I was a res rescue technician by the time I was 18 and took all those skills to college with me. Uh, and volunteered throughout, you know, my college experience as well up to the age of 24 when I became a police officer. But uh, I think the primary influences in my life on the trauma side were certainly my medical health and then, uh, you know, my, my parents' lack of relationship and the mental abuse that went on inside my house um, throughout my childhood. It's Part of the conversation that we ignore frequently it, when we talk about our first responders and we talk about occupational traumatic stress, we like to package it all up as being because of the job. But what we're, what we're seeing scientifically is that 
oftentimes there's a connection between uh, adverse childhood experiences, which we we talked about briefly, uh, and going into these emergency fields. So we're also thinking that there is a predisposition towards occupational reacting to occupational traumatic stress more significantly when we have these adverse childhood experiences. And you had mentioned that you've actually taken the ACE questionnaire, which for those of you that don't know, ACE is a standardized questionnaire that tells us, um, it gives us some predictive information as to how significant the trauma background of an individual is and whether there's developmental trauma present. So the higher the ACE number, the more questions you answer yes to, the more likely you're going to be theoretically to experience occupational traumatic stress in the future. So you were surprised when you took that questionnaire. I was, you know, I, as kids, we don't think about these things, right? We just deal with them and we move on. Some of them stink, some of them just whatever. Uh, And as an adult, I'd never really, as you alluded to, thought about all of those childhood experiences and how they were led me to where I came through in my career or to where I am today. And about a year ago, when I was introduced to the whole ACEs concept and took that test, I was like, holy cow. I was like a seven out of 10 on that thing. And, um, you know, beyond the recognition of the childhood trauma and where that may have led you today, that higher that score also leads to a propensity of suicide. Uh, So the one thing it did for me is it allowed me to recognize that my own chances of self-inflicted harm when if a trigger you know would come my way would be higher than somebody else experiencing the same thing so it's something i'm conscious of that i don't allow myself to slip into that space the other thing that's really interesting about this test that i'd like to mention briefly is did you feel at all diagnosed or stigmatized by having this knowledge or did this knowledge actually provide you uh, awareness and tools that you could look at and and see those vulnerabilities and go oh hey i can solve this this is not something that i have to be uh, a victim to yeah i I never really had the victim mentality to begin with no matter what stage of life i was in uh so i don't feel that having that knowledge now puts me in that space and I don't feel stigmatized at all. I feel empowered to be honest with you uh, because now I know that the scientific possibilities exist that I am a more vulnerable uh, place for my own uh, mental health than somebody else that has, you know, had the same exact experiences as me as a professional uh, knowing what my childhood background was. So I'm just, it makes me conscious of it. Uh, to give me, it's just another tool to be able to, to support yourself uh, and, and support others, to be quite frank. Uh, because when other people that you work with or have relationships with have a conceptual idea of their background and how that plays into their, their mental health, I, I think you can help support them through their current challenges. I love this mentality. I, I love your strength because this is a, a challenging conversation for people Sometimes people take that information as like, 
as it's inevitable and there's nothing they can do about it when what this information is supposed to do is what it's done for you, give you power and choice to say, this is a potential vulnerability. I can address this. I can take charge of my life and make sure that this doesn't have a negative outcome for me. So, so it gave me context. It gave me definition. Um, and it's again, just, it's an added tool and it shouldn't be used as a weakness. It should be used as a strength for sure. Yes. I love that so much. So talk a little bit about your experience uh, in both of those positions in your law enforcement and in your emergency medicine. So, you know, as an EMT, uh, again, I started as a volunteer when I was 14 and uh, took the class when we were 16, which is the state minimum here in New Jersey. Um, it was awesome, by the way. It gave me an education that you can't get in school uh, and you just can't get in your daily life. You get to see the best and the worst of everybody from the most horrific deaths to uh, helping with childbirth. So it's, uh, you know, the, the two ends of life. And uh, at the age of 16, you know, let's say 14 to 18, when your brain development is at, at its peak, um, a lot of those experiences become a great education, but at the same time, they're being, pro they're not being processed properly because your brain doesn't have the ability to do that. So it, it just, you never deal with the emotions of it. You're dealing with the process of it, uh, you know, of the event itself, not what it, you're thinking about long-term. And then as I went through the police, well, finished college, went through the police academy and uh, the 20 years in law enforcement, I, again, you have all these experiences that you don't process in real time. Uh, so then they end up sitting with you in a box in the back of your head. And uh, at the worst times in your life, they open up and spill out all over the place. Uh, but they, it, it's honestly, I love my career. I was, uh, during my police career, I was mostly narcotics uh, work. I was a drug recognition expert. I, I loved that. Um, it's, uh, I became an impairment expert, uh, recognizing courts uh, all across New Jersey for that, uh, which was great experience. And then the community policing aspect is also something I really enjoyed. Uh, the benefit of seeing a smile on a kid's face when a police officer does something for them is really special. And that's what really got me up every morning to go to work. And I loved every minute of the community policing aspect. You like people. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny that you say that. Uh, I do love people, but at the same time, I hate people. Uh, and most cops will tell you that. Um, we, we see the best and worst of folks, you know, and nothing really in between. So when you're doing that community policing work, you really see the good the good humans in your community, in your world. Uh, but when people call for the police because they need them, it's at their absolute lowest point in life. And uh, you see more of that than not. And then you become jaded and you hate people. Uh, but for the most part, yes, I, I love networking. I love being with people. I, I love supporting folks in the best way that I know how that I can, because that's what makes me feel good. Do you feel like there's any connection or was there for you uh, in having the childhood experiences that you had and then choosing to go into a helping profession? You have to believe that there's definitely a connection there. Um, when I teach the resiliency program that I'm involved with, one of the things that pops up regularly is sexual assault. And I know that's a really heavy topic, uh, but 
this is not scientific research at all, but I would have to say somewhere around 80% of the women in law enforcement that I've come in contact with, especially through the resiliency program, have been sexually assaulted as kids uh, or even as young adults and about 60% of the men. Uh, so like I, every time we open these classes up and we have uh, the introductions, it, it's amazing to me how many law enforcement officers have had these adverse childhood experiences, obviously sexual assault being the worst of it. Uh, and just, you gotta believe that those experiences have led all first responders, uh, even medical staff to doing the work that they do because it's, it, it helps solve some of their own strife and their emotions to be able to give back and help others, especially in response to those that helped them along the way. So I think, yeah, there's absolutely a connection there. And you have, have you been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress? So I've never gone that route. Uh, I, I've never had a diagnosis. I've never sought psychological assistance um, in the conventional way. Uh, and I think some of that comes, for me at least, it comes with some biases of experiences that I've had, both as a child. I know when my parents were going through a divorce, my mom had me seeing a counselor that uh, was not a good fit for me. And I think when you do seek that kind of help, uh, cultural competency is very important uh, and it's not going to be the same for everybody. So that was my first exposure to it and turned me off right away. Uh, and then as an adult and a father, I have a son who we brought to seek some professional counseling uh, early on in his childhood uh, because he was struggling with what we now know as ADHD symptoms. And we didn't really understand that at the, the forefront of his uh, uh, expression of his symptoms. And so we sought some psychological help. And the, <laughs> the psych, I'll never forget this. The psychologist told my son in front of me that I was most of his problem, which comes from my law enforcement background. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it really turned me off from ever going to see anybody in the mental health field like that again. Uh, and I know that's not fair because there are so many great counselors out there. There's so many great doctors and psychiatrists, psychologists, but I, I didn't cross paths with one that was culturally competent in, in the experiences that I had. And it really soured me. And so I never got diagnosed. No long answer for a short question. No, um, it's really interesting. You say that because this is a conversation we have very, very frequently and I am seeking education. I'm going for my doctorate and I'm following that traditional uh, pathway. But what's really interesting is most of the clients that I work with, most of the people that come to me have come to me because they've gone that traditional pathway. They've sought a therapist or a counselor that's uh, more traditional and they didn't have the ability to work with trauma or they didn't have the ability to work with first responders. And there's two really high, high level specialties there. Mm -hmm. Working with trauma is its own set of tons of different, like you have to know a lot of different things that aren't just normal psychology. And then going into having that cultural competency with first responders is a totally different animal. If, you're, if you've never been a first responder, there's no education that's gonna give that to you. You're no. never going to fully understand and appreciate what's going to be said and the way it's going to be said, and you're never going to connect and understand. So to create more 
we need more people who are from the field going through the education, getting the resources, becoming therapists, and focusing their services back into the first responder field. And that's a lot. That I mean, that's asking a lot of people. So there is a shortage. There's a national shortage of people that are qualified and capable of doing this work. Just because a therapist is licensed as a therapist doesn't mean they're going to be able to or should be working with first responders with these scenarios because we've heard things just in my clinic. <clears throat> I've had people come in and say, my therapist cried when I told her about my experience and I had to support her. That's yeah, I've heard that story more than once. Right. That's not working. That's problematic. That's damaging. That's just putting you guys back into work zone and yep. you're having to take care of someone else and you're not getting any care. And the other is therapists that say things that they shouldn't say, like, how could you? Or when, when we're already dealing with people who have guilt and shame and survive, especially survivor's guilt or something along those lines, and then someone turns around and says, how could you? I mean, that, that's a trigger for suicide. I mean, we're literally, that is a, a potentially fatal error. And we're not holding therapists accountable for saying, I'm qualified to work with you, or I maybe should refer you off to someone who is qualified to work with you. So it's a conversation I think we need to have that, yes, we love the therapists and we want to promote them and we want to say this is a good profession, but we also want to hold them accountable to recognize their individual skills and limitations and to say, okay, look, this isn't my client. This is not someone I should work with. And to build relationships with other resources that are qualified to work with uh, first responders, because it is very unique and it does require a different skill set. No, I, I completely agree. And I think where we've struggled um, in, on a societal level with that is, you know, every third show on TV is a first responder show. So you know, I wouldn't go in to uh, defend a murderer or prosecute a murderer because I watched three episodes of Law and Order. But the the greater community and society thinks they know what cops do or firefighters do uh, because they've watched Chicago PD, you know, and it, it's just not how life works. That It's TV. Uh, and we can't train ourselves or school ourselves based on an, a one hour show. Uh, and I think that has creeped into all parts of our society. And you're right. For a therapist uh, or a practitioner, mental health practitioner of any level, needs to understand that accountability is, is what needs to be had to make sure that that first responder gets the appropriate care that they need. Ooh, I'm pushing buttons today. I don't usually challenge the field too much, but... Uh, but being in the field and observing so much and seeing so many people who fall out of that system, uh, there are times it becomes very frustrating because we depend on those titles. We depend on those on those jobs, not knowing as people who are seeking services, not knowing how to find 
that match, not knowing how to find that person who's going to be for us because there's no specialty. Like it's, it's just challenging. So one of the pieces that I've seen uh, to work really successfully as of recent uh, is the peer to peer model um, that's supported by, you know, a medical director of some kind, uh, whether it's a, a licensed therapist or an actual uh, doctor in psychology uh, or psychiatry. But uh, it, the peer to peer model seems to be working so much better than what I've seen in the past of, of traditional mental health medicine. And you're getting that culturally competent peer that has some training on how to guide you. And we're using uh, the QPR model where um, you can help the person out in understanding and listening. You can make um, suggestions. And then if they need, you can make referrals. Uh, and that's where the mental health clinician comes in. Uh, but the peer-to-peer -peer model is kind of that interim piece that may just give that additional bit of support that an individual needs to, when they come to that why in the road, whether they're going to go the suicidal route or, you know, or, or find strength to move forward in a different direction. And uh, often that peer-to-peer -peer model allows them to take that right turn instead of the left. And uh, it, it seems to be functional and it seems to be working. It's often the step that's needed to get people to accept Correct. or be prepared for the yep. next step. And not everyone needs therapy. Oh my gosh, I said it. Just because someone is having symptoms of post-traumatic or occupational stress, not everyone needs therapy, not everyone needs medication. Those things are useful and valuable, but they are not necessitated to everyone. So we're talking agree. about a huge, huge trauma spectrum. We're talking about tons of people who have symptoms, uh, most of which wouldn't fall into the diagnos diagnostic criteria. But everyone on the spectrum of having trauma reactivity needs tools and resources, needs support, and needs to be able to feel comfortable in their emotions and expressing their experiences but not everyone needs therapy. So the peer model reaches that 75 or 80 or plus more percent of people that aren't diagnostic and don't need medication and therapy. I so most, most people are in that sub uh, diagnostic area. And if peer support were universally accepted and universally applied with high quality training, I think we could probably get underneath the problem and we would actually see a shift in the suicide rate in the I suicide. And I think one of the best preventers of all of that are the buddy check-ins. Uh, you know, there's many different cute acronyms for it, uh, but buddy check-ins I think are just so important. You know, pick three people a day and send a text to them. And you just may be that one person that's actually reaching out. Um, and, you know, I, I say that often, you know, be the one because nobody else may be doing it. And it, the effect you can have on someone, even if they're not your best friend, just someone you happen to know, you happen to know that they're struggling with something, uh, just shoot them a text, say, hey, thinking about you today, hope you're doing okay. If you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. That's all it takes. And it might be that just small piece of intervention that that other person then stops and pauses for a minute and goes, wow, somebody does care. And 
it changes the mindset. It, it changes that uh, negative into a positive. And like we often say in the resiliency programs, you know, joy and hate and fear, they can't live in the same place at the same time. So if you can make somebody happy in that moment, that may be what changes the direction for them for the day. Uh, so yeah, buddy check-ins are so important. That's the first piece of the peer-to-peer -peer concept. We see oftentimes people who have attempted to commit suicide. And again, not statistically, not going into the science of this, but just in clinic, people who have attempted to commit suicide, the number one thing I hear, well, two things. One is I felt like if I took my life, it would be easier for everyone else around me. That burdensomeness piece is the number one thing. And the other thing that I hear is if someone would have just said something to me that day, if someone would have just noticed that I was around or just made me just said, Hey, like, if someone would have said anything to me, it would have changed everything. And that there's that very, very small window of doubt uh, when somebody's suicidal and it just takes that phone to ring, that text to come in, uh, that changes the whole course of what's about to happen. And so it's so important just to reach out to your friends, even not your friends, just colleagues, coworkers, anybody. Just be the one to, to care. Yeah, some of this I think is based in that our rational minds understand that we're not a burden. Our rational minds understand that what we're what we're telling ourselves is untrue. So there's a conflict happening there. And if somebody reaches out, it tips that it tips that belief system, it tips that knowing a little bit further to the conscious mind and gets Absolutely. some of those those negative unconscious beliefs out of the way. And you can actually tell yourself, oh, but I am valuable, but I do matter, but somebody does care about me. And sometimes we just need a little evidence. I agree. To, to push <laughs> to push us across that boundary. I so, agree. Um, I like, there is a card that I post up on the website that is this just some questions to ask people if, if they seem off, if they seem like they're in a mood to be blatant. And just say, so how are you feeling today? You know, is there something I can do for you? But even further than that, if your friend seems off, so are you contemplating taking your own life? Be blatant, be just blatant about it because in our in our industries, this happens. We see it all the time. So shake it up and just say, hey, you know, are you thinking about this? And if the answer is people are truthful more often than not, they'll literally be like, Hey, how'd you know? <laughs> like they're not going to, they don't often hide it. Statistically we've shown that the people who are actually contemplating suicide will look you in the eye and say, yeah, I have been thinking that because you, you startle them. It's a satisfaction house. thing for them uh, on, on both sides of it. So the, the idea of taking your own life and making that decision and, and firming your decision to do that, it is one of the more positive, it sounds crazy, one of the more positive moments in that person's life at that point, uh, because it, it's, they've made that decision to go forward and, and they see happiness in that. So quite often before, or you'll hear actually post uh, completion of suicide, you'll hear, what, man, that person just had the greatest week I've ever seen them have. Well, it's because the week prior to that, they decided that's what they were going to do. So they were now happy about it. Um, but yeah, and they're happy to tell you that, which is to someone who's rational, is not rational.
but that person who's contemplating suicide, those th that thought is not rational. Uh, so they will tell you that, which is crazy. And I wish I knew that earlier on in my life because we've all lost people to that. And that's kind of why many of us do this work. Um, and my buddy, Danny, who uh, took his life January 29th of 2020, that sent me down this course of trying to help others in this way. Uh, I didn't ask that question and I regret it because uh, I spoke to him the day before he committed suicide. And um, if I knew to ask that question, it, I don't know if things would have been different or not. He was, you know, pretty committed. Uh, but I always wonder if I knew more than I knew now, you know, that if I knew more then than I, as much as I know now, would things have been different? I, I don't know the answer, but uh, I certainly question it. So crazy question and probably really intrusive, but throughout your career, have you ever had serious considerations for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, two times in my life, uh, one was more serious than others. Uh, and I was on the way home from work. I was involved in a uh, internal affairs complaint that was in, literally internal, had nothing to do with anything other than an administrative ruling. And uh, I had I was caught in a, uh, a war of words, essentially. And uh, there was no real way for me to, to satisfy the issue. And uh, I knew that it wasn't going to end in my favor because it was never it never started to end in my favor. Uh, the investigation was kind of, you know, we're going after this guy and this is why and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, so it was it was unfortunate and I felt like, you know, everything was ending around me. Uh, I had a plan on the way home that day and it was a midnight shift. So I was going home at like six in the morning and the phone rang. It was my son because I just wanted to call and say uh, good morning. I wasn't sure if you'd be home before I get to school, before I leave for school. And we had, you know, probably an eight minute conversation that put me through that gap. Uh, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but you know, a day later, I'm like, that's weird. I wasn't supposed to be here today. And uh, that phone call was my turning point, uh, which I think is pretty cool. So I will always have him to thank for that. And I look forward to someday telling him that story. Um, but the other point in my life where things were kind of dark and shady was uh, after I retired and, you know, the honeymoon period of being off was uh, over and uh, it was right in the beginning. So I retired January 1st of 2020. And then I, that 30 day honeymoon period was awesome. Uh, then kind of COVID started bubbling up. And by the beginning of March, we were in that full blown COVID situation. And I, I didn't know where things were going for me. I didn't know what I was going to do to keep myself occupied and because I had way too much time on my hands, all the 20 years in, uh, of police work and then 10 years of EMS before that kind of started bubbling over. I wasn't sleeping. I was miserable. I was having nightmares. I, I call them flashbacks. I don't know if that's true. Like just uh, recalling car, you know, certain calls for service that I was reprocessing and regretting the outcomes of. And should I have done this differently? We're talking 20 years old stuff, you know, uh, but I never processed it throughout my career. So in this time of like void, everything started coming out and bubbling over. Uh, and then I was in a pretty bad spot through the first six months 
uh, of 2020. And then when my buddy Danny uh, died by suicide, I was like, you know what? That could have just as easily been me. And, you know, I was trying to work him through some of the issues he was facing, which was mostly betrayal. Uh, and it, I recognize that after his death, that that's what he was struggling with in just about every aspect of his life. And I just made a vow that that would never, I'd never be in that position to leave my family like that and seeing it with it to his family and friends. And that's, that was my turning point. I knew I was never going back, uh, but I was going to make it my life's work to try to help others, you know, not do what he did. So. Thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty and your straightforward real talk. We need real talk. That's what it is. You, you can't hide it. Um, as first responders, we all we all get to a dark place. We just see the, the worst of life sometimes. And but we have to be able to process it. And certainly processing it alone is not helpful, I don't think. Uh finding your tribe that is comforting to you to be able to process those journeys together is so important. Uh, and one of the things that I often end up in conversations about is the transition, uh, transition from your public service work into retirement. And you have to do it with purpose and you have to do it with people. Uh, because if you try to do that alone, like I did, I, nobody, by the way, I never had any of these conversations before I retired. Uh, I figured this out the hard way on my own. I wish somebody would have talked to me about this stuff beforehand. It would have made my process and my transition a lot easier. Uh, but I remember calling my buddy Joe at like, I don't know, it's probably the end of February, beginning of March. I'm like, dude, I'm miserable. Then we retire the same day. He goes, I know, me too. I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm not sleeping. I, I'm having these weird nightmares, these dreams. He goes, I know, me too. It's crazy, but I don't want to say anything to anybody. I'm like, well, why not? He goes, well, I don't, think any, I don't want anybody to think I'm nuts. And, uh, you know, he had some substance abuse issues with alcohol or throughout the course of his life and his career. And he's like, I just want anybody thinking I was drinking again. I'm like, are you? And he's like, not really, because I have a beer every now and again. He goes, but I doesn't really drink anymore. Um, but because I, I just didn't want people to think I was nuts having going through all of this. Nobody talks about it. So that's why I was like, you know what? We have to change that. And that's why I feel comfortable saying the quiet parts out loud, because somebody's got to. And I'm not a hero in doing it, but hopefully it spawns a conversation for other people to do the same. And, you know, it's that ripple effect. So. And this is a really good point to talk about how occupational traumatic stress or traumatic stress across the lifetime, how our experiences can look differently for different people. Because many of my guests, many of the people that I've interviewed in the past have had a progressive cumulative trauma experience. So their symptoms hit early, relatively early on, you know, five to 10 years into their careers, and they are not coping appropriately. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse until it hits a culmination point where your experience is much more like mine. You go into the job, you are adrenaline junkie. You're like, give me all the worst cases. Give me all that. Like, I love this. This is the best thing ever. And you go and you go and you go and you go until you don't. And it's not until that moment when you stop that stuff starts hitting you. So it can look two very different ways and everything in between. So yeah. I, I had the same thing. I, I was completely fine 
And then all of a sudden I wasn't. And I was thinking about things that happened 30 years ago and having like closed my eyes and the vision is on the back of my eyelids, which is the weirdest thing to like memories, moments, smells, the whole thing is all just present all of a sudden. And like that, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. Like, why am I sitting there thinking about it now? And it's just present. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that we're in it all the time, that that's all we're thinking about, that it's taken over our lives, but it's present with us. And now we have to look at it. So in that, we have to deal with it or put it back away. And put, I don't think putting it back away is helpful. Uh, so one thing that I've learned along the course of my journey, and it was a gift given to me by uh, a woman named Sarah Carell, who is the host uh, or the producer of a program called The Power of Our Story. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with that, I highly suggest you, you look it up and uh, be part of it. She uh, developed this platform. It's actually pre-COVID. Uh, and then when COVID hit, everything went to Zoom. And what it, that did is expanded it to anybody. It wasn't just her little local community. Uh, and essentially, she calls it coffee and conversation. So it started out as like a fire pit chat with a bunch of folks from her, one of her, uh, her classes. And uh, it, you know, when COVID hit, she took that fireside chat to, to Zoom and she opens up these conversations and it allows people to come in and tell their story. And you know, therefore the, the name of the group, the power of our story uh, and hearing your own words out loud, your own thoughts out loud for the first time is incredibly powerful. Uh, and being able to just let your thoughts just exit your body uh, through the power of your story and telling it out loud like that is just, it's cathartic, but it's also uh, so helpful for other people to understand that they're not going through this process and this journey alone. And so many of us, while our backgrounds are different, our uh, individual facts of our stories are different, we're all going through the same types of emotions. Uh, they may be processed in different order. Uh, you may see them come out in different ways, but it's in, in the inside, it's all the same. So for people to understand that there's somebody else that's experienced the same thing is so important. And then for you to hear your story out loud for the first time is coming out of your mouth uh, is so powerful. So, so powerful. So yeah, that's, you know, that's my, my uh, advice is, is talk about your, your journey because uh, you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for others as well. And the more we talk about it, the more we get this reality out there, the more we show different, different people having similar experiences in different ways, the more that we show all of this connection and all of this diversity at the same time, the more that we just show you that it's affecting us all and that mm -hmm. it's okay to have your experience your way. It's okay to express your emotions your way and that there's no right or wrong way to be in the healing process. There's no right or wrong way to be human. There's no right or wrong way to be a first responder struggling with first responder issues. Everyone is unique, but we're all in this together. We're all family and we don't necessarily know you, but we are here for you. And our stories are available to you. 
and the resources that we've used to get to where we are are available to you. And we're all happy to share, you know, though this was the path that I took. These are the things that I tried. They might not work for you. There's no one solution, but these are things you can try. And I'm happy to walk beside you as you do. Absolutely. It's so important. Uh, having that, just that, that tribe of familiarity around you is so powerful. So what are you doing now to what help others? doing now? I, I, so many different things. Honestly, what, because I officially retired from the police department, I can do whatever the heck makes me happy. And uh, you know, here in New Jersey, we have a very good uh, public safety pension system uh, for police and fire, which is, uh, makes it very easy to then do things that make you happy because you don't necessarily have to work for pay the bills. And uh, so one of the main things that I love to do is helping other police officers that uh, need the support. Uh, so that's kind of where I've netted out over the last couple of years. And I do that through being a facilitator for a program called Resilient Minds on the Front Lines. Uh, I'm also a consultant for uh, New Jersey's Office of Resiliency for Law Enforcement, which is through the uh, Attorney General's Office and the Department of Public Safety. And I try to do everything I can to support my fellow brothers and sisters that are still out there earning their badge every day. Um, and then we've recently added the retirement piece into that. Because when you look at that 18 months before retirement and 18 months after, that's one of the most vulnerable points in our lives. And uh, that transition process has been very difficult and very challenging. And we've never, um, we haven't prepared people, especially in emergency services, police, fire, EMS, to make that transition uh, smoothly and with purpose. The military has done a pretty good job with it through the TAP program. But now here in New Jersey, we're trying to develop something that uh, will help first responders, but specifically law enforcement transition out of uniform and back into the private sector. So I've been doing a lot of that and I've been taking uh, my training and experience as a drug recognition expert and trying to develop that as a small business on the side. Uh, it's been an interesting journey with that as well, seeing what people react to and what they don't. Uh, I was hoping that it would be something more than it is now, but what I'm worrying is nobody really cares uh, about the whole impairment thing, which is strange, uh, but I, I still do some of that work as well. The drug conversation is always interesting. Very, very. <laughs> yeah, here in New Jersey, uh, we've legalized, or I should say decriminalized marijuana uh, and all THC products to a place where it's a free-for-all, essentially. Uh, the regulations are, are, are minimal. Uh, but what we're finding is that there's a workplace impairment problem because of it. So... There's a lot of discussion in that. Unfortunately, our legislature here in New Jersey hasn't done a lot to mitigate that problem because the whole purpose of the three-part law, the decriminalization law they put together was on a social justice platform. So their theory seems to be if they go back on some of the workplace stuff that they're, they're pushing back on their original platform for the law itself. So I, I just, I'm not sure how that's going to shake out, but here we're having a struggle with it because we have people in uh, you know, construction industries or any other type of mechanical industries, they're showing up to work in pair uh, because they can. And it's, it's unfortunate, but hopefully they'll, they'll, we'll get it straightened out. But in the meantime, it's, a, it's an issue. Those are challenging conversations, that balance between social justice 
and unexpected consequences and responsibility and the balance of law-abiding citizen versus criminal rights and like we have all of these places where we have this really big gray area in the conversation where ooh, we don't we don't touch that we don't talk about that we don't go there um but we do need to go there because it's not us versus them it needs sure. to be what's best for everyone and how do we achieve that in my and, mind it's safety versus not safety right i think we're losing that clarity of, of creating safety because we're trying to um we're trying to do what's right but we're missing so many pieces so people are not looking at big pictures anymore they're like they're looking at one tiny piece and trying to solve one tiny piece but you don't you don't create laws that way <laughs> you have to yeah, look no, at true. You know, without trying to take this conversation off the rails um one of the big pieces that they originally put into new jersey's uh legalization process, which has since been removed, they criminalized law enforcement. Literally, it became a fourth degree crime for law enforcement to tell a parent that they had contact with their child uh, in public who was under the age and using cannabis. Let's process that for a second. As a police officer, you were going to jail for a fourth degree crime, punishable up to a year in jail. Sorry, fourth degree, so five years in jail, $1,000 fine if you told a parent that you had contact with their underage child in possession or using cannabis on the street. But they have to be 18 to purchase cigarettes. Correct. Well, in theory, you have to be 21 to purchase uh, any THC product in the state of New Jersey as well. Uh, it kind of follows the alcohol guidelines. Uh, but essentially what they were doing was they were criminalizing the contact so there wouldn't be any. Uh, right. and, but that, that's where this law started out in New Jersey. So priorities. Yeah. Well, and all of that, I'm no, it's a little bit off the rails, but all of that comes back to. It's a mental health thing for the cops, for sure. Right. To the experience of being a first responder, having to work in the environment that we're currently working in, Correct. having to adapt to the new ways of policing Correct. that they're more at risk than they've ever been of, of being injured or killed in the line of duty. Yep. And they now are accountable for every contact in ways that they've never been before. And they're vulnerable. They're Absolutely. not in a position where they're, where they can ask questions and stop someone and just say, hey, what's up? Because everything is about how vulnerable am I going to be in this situation? Am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be prosecuted? Like all of this is in their minds, which drastically increases their stress, which drastically increases fear, which is going to lead to inevitably more suicides, more post-traumatic stress diagnosis, more domestic violence, more addiction. Absolutely. Like we're exacerbating this problem instead of focusing on solutions for this problem. So even though it was a little off the rails, it really wasn't. Yeah, great, great <laughs> comeback though, I must say. Great way to tie it together, I love that. No, uh, everything to, is connected. To put some stats on that, uh, you know, taking out the COVID numbers, because that kind of really skewed law enforcement deaths over the last couple of years, uh, 
but when you look at officers murdered in the line of duty rather than killed in the line of duty, uh, has been out on an average of 15% year over year for the last four years. And which seems like a lot and it is, and that number shouldn't be going up, should be coming down. Uh, however, uh, law enforcement suicides are up about 50% year over year over the last five years. Now we're about three times the amount of suicides than we are officers murdered in the line of duty. It's crazy. And a lot of that has to do with the, with the, the way policing has changed so dramatically and the ability to not properly adapt to that because it's such a shift, such a dramatic shift that it, it's almost not processable for somebody that's been in the career for a while. How important do you think social perception is? Do you think that there is a change in the way officers feel about themselves? Um, two separate questions, I think. Uh, but I, I think social perception is, is big. And I can speak from my own personal experiences, but also looking through the window from the outside. One of the biggest pieces that most cops absolutely embrace is the community policing aspect of our jobs. And so that is about making people happy. That is about building relationships. That is about wanting people to appreciate the work that you're doing, not just for them, but with them. Because law enforcement can't police their communities with 100% success on their own. So much of that comes with the, the shared responsibility of the community itself. And so those relationships and that perception is such a big part of the job that without it, we have two separate dichotomies. You have the law enforcement side and you have the community side. And if we don't bridge that gap and that, that comes with mutual respect and admiration of, of each, uh, it's an unsuccessful position for everybody. Uh, so I think that is very important. Um, and then on the other side of that, I think officers certainly thrive on uh, those, re those positive relationships and the community looking up to them as a resource. Uh, it, it's not an ego thing. It can be per certainly perceived that way, but I don't believe it to be. It's just, it makes you feel purposeful when you can help and support somebody else. And as in the law enforcement world, that's why we're there. We're there to protect and serve the community uh, with purpose. Uh, and no, I, I don't think anybody should get into that job of law enforcement if that's not your goal. Uh, if your goal is the good pension or, or the shiny badge or, or the fact that, you know, as we used to call it in the police academy, the CDI factor, the chicks dig it, um, it, it that's not the reason to get into the job. It, you have to go into it with purpose and you have to be there and prepared to serve your community at all costs and build those relationships because it has to be done together. So yeah, is it uh, hurtful when it goes the other way? For sure. Is it a source of some of the stress? Absolutely. Because if that tension is built there between the agency and the officers and the community, it's not a recipe for success. No, I, I often hear, I went into the job because I just wanted to help people. And when I left the job, I felt like everybody hated me. Yep. Absolutely. I hear that all the time. And I think some of that is uh, accurate, uh, I, but I think so much of it is built on our perceived, our perception based on our experiences. Uh, again, you know, like I said before, 
we see the worst in human nature every day. Uh, 90% of our job, the calls that we answer, are people's worst moments. Nobody calls to, hey, can, I need the police. I want to get rid of the coffee that's left in my pot. I want them to share it with somebody. Like, we don't get those calls. Uh, we get the calls when there's domestics. We get the calls when there's, you know, nasty crashes. We get the calls when 15-year-old uh, children just, you know, beat the crap out of a parent. Um, and then they expect us to fix in 15 minutes what they created over 15 years. You know, like you're you're put in these positions to support people in their worst moments and they want instant gratification from it. It just doesn't. That's not life. It's not how it works. Uh, so you walk away from your career after, you know, 20, 25 years. And you do think that people hit you because your successes are limited, but it's so important that we point them out to each other. And it's so important that you are recognized for them throughout your career. And at the end of your career, one of the things that I always struggled with was we had, you know, these year end award ceremonies every year. Uh, you might get a life-saving medal for having successfully performed CPR and the person's still alive, or maybe you got something for um, a rescue that you did or for saving somebody, whatever. But when you take a step back and the community looks at the accolades that the officer's getting, it's because somebody else literally had the worst day of their life. Uh, so it's this really weird mix, but you're not rewarding the officer for, for that other person's tragedy. You're rewarding that officer for something that they did above and beyond what they're supposed to do you have to recognize those wins. Otherwise, what's it all for? We, we don't want to go out of the career only remembering the, the lives that we lost, um, the people that we couldn't save. Uh, you know, the 18 times we went to the same household for a domestic violence incident. And then the, the victim was, you know, found deceased a week later and we didn't, we couldn't fix that. Because that happens more times than we like to admit. But you got to recognize those wins and you got to support each other through those wins. And at the end of the road, when your time is over and your career's done, that's what you have to remember. Those are the moments you have to capitalize on, because otherwise, what was it all for? Yep. Can't save everyone. Nope. It's the hardest life lesson any of us can ever learn. You can't save everyone. And you, you do have to celebrate the small wins. And that's everyone. That's not just first responders. Literally the biggest sign, the biggest telltale for people who are happy and people who have fulfilling lives is the ability to focus on solutions instead of problems and the ability to see the positive in every single day and to recognize those wins. So that mindset of being able to focus on the wins and accept the losses that's just inevitable. I agree. Can change the outcome so drastically. And those are skills. Changing mindset to follow that pathway is not natural for most people. It's not normal for most people. It's a practice. Absolutely. Practice because you have to keep trying every single day to do it. So it's just another skill, just another tool in the toolbox. And that's what we often talk about through the resiliency programs. 
is most of the resiliency stuff is a pre-boom exercise. They're, we're not looking to fix anybody on the back end. That you got to do on your own. Uh, but if we can give you the tools, so when you get to that boom moment, you have them to then spiral yourself back out of that in an upward direction. So you're not going downward into this dark, this dark hole. Um, the further down you go, the farther you got to climb out of it. And obviously that's pretty basic, uh, but you can't let yourself sink too far. And one of the phrases we use is catch yourself, catching yourself. And uh, it's so important to recognize when you're having that moment or when that slide is occurring and go back to that toolbox that you were given that over the course of your life or any course that you took or any class you've had and use those tools to kind of find your way back out slowly, uh, but find your way back out. And, and again, that, that joy and misery can't live in the same place at the same time. So be grateful for things, see the little wins, uh, understand where you've come from, the, the positive you've had on, on others. And I'm not really a religious guy. Uh, I know a lot of people in this space are. Um, I try to work on my spirituality as much as I can, but I'm not a religious guy. Uh, but one thing that, you know, I've always remembered from my religious school days was to save one life is to save the world. And if you weren't there in that moment, that would have just been another tragedy. So if you can do just capitalize on, on those positive moments and, and recognize the positive effect you've had on the world and just keep doing it. So we are out of time, but, and I think you just probably summed it up, but what is your final thoughts for our folks out here? My final thought is just do you. Uh, don't try to be anybody else. Just do you and uh, stay positive. That, that whole idea of positive psychology, just it's just as contagious as the negativity. So if you can be that bright room, that bright spot in the room, uh, people will gravitate towards you and you're going to, it'll be that ripple effect. You say something positive at three in the morning coffee instead of the, uh, the negativity about somebody at work, you're going to, that will catch on just as well as the negativity. So be the bright spot, be the positive person in the room. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This is a great, great talking conversation. I'm glad I could support you. Thank you so much, everyone, for being with us today on this episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life. And again, th that was David Perez. And I am Krista Fee, and I will be signing off. If you like this podcast and want us to keep doing it, you can support the podcast with the button in below or go to battletobe.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E dot O-R-G. And know all proceeds from this podcast do go to our 501c3 nonprofit and help us continue to provide post-traumatic and occupational stress resources for those who are struggling. Also to run our ferryman project for next year. And we are hoping to reach 400 families over the course of next year. So we can't do it without your support. Thank you so much and have an amazing day.